All right, welcome, welcome. Heart of the Matter 2.0. Our show tonight is called Why This God? Why This Bible? Why This Jesus? Let's kick it off with a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, seek you and love you and need you in all things and pray you'll be with our audience and our volunteers and everything will transmit and uh, record and that people will be able to tune in and we pray that your spirit will move them to your truths and the stuff I say which is wrong or bad, let them forget or call me on it and the stuff that's of you, let us remember. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look at this. If tithing was a New Testament law, shouldn't it be considered a gift rather than an obligation as the LDS Church teaches? I agree. It should come from the heart. Don't Christian churches require the payment of tithes? Unfortunately, some do. But there is no New Testament basis for it. The early Christian church did, of course, practice giving. Their charitable giving had two functions. To support those believers who were poor and to support the apostles and their Christian leaders in their ministry. Nowhere in the New Testament is such giving regulated in the form of tithing. God does not expect a specific amount or percentage. Nowhere under the New Covenant does God threaten believers with a fiery judgment if they fail to pay a tithe or even neglect to give money or offerings of any amount. God is a generous giving God and His people should be generous giving people. Tithing per se, however, is not a mark of true Christianity. the Mormons check that stuff out on YouTube hey listen they're speaking of tithing in Nairobi yesterday Kenya Nairobi Kenya new LDS prophet P-R-O-F-I-T someone was asking about going back to uh, uh, HOTM 1.0 just for a while uh, and anyway I'm sort of doing it but Russell M. Nelson LDS prophet speaking to the people of Nairobi. Now we're not talking about much affluence there. Quote, we preach tithing to the poor people of the world because the poor people of the world have had cycles of poverty generation after generation. That same poverty continues from one generation to another until people pay their tithing. End Quote, who do you pay tithing to, Russell M. Nelson? Who are you telling these poor people of Nairobi, most of them black, most of them in squalor, most of them trying to find a beetle to eat? You're asking them to pay tithing to who? To you! <laughs> I can't even get mad anymore. <laughs> you, want, you want me to do 1.0? I can't even do it. Uh, but anyway, that is appalling. It's appalling when Christian churches use the word, like talking to Mormons has pointed out. It's really appalling. The Mormon church has people under that bondage so that they can get in the temple, so they can get their endowments, so that they can go to heaven, so that they can be sealed. It's all just a money-making scam. And really sorry to hear Nelson throw that down on those poor people of Nairobi. All through the Old Testament, God is never putting that stuff on poor people. He is setting things up to help people who are struggling and poor. Widows and orphans, fatherless stuff. It's there to help them, not for them to pay into it. It's really disgusting. All right, listen. Hey, next week we're going to have a special pre-recorded. So if you show up here, uh, you're not going to be able to see it live. It's going to be pre-recorded. John DeLynn of Mormon Stories fame. John and I started out 
discussing Mormon issues about the same time back in 2005, 2006. He invited me to do a Mormon Stories. I think it's Mormon Stories 221, 222. That, that's, those, that's the number of, he's done 900 now. I was number 221, 222. And, and he invited me to do the show, uh, much to the behest of people who are LDS and former LDS who did not like me. And the three-part interview has proved to be very beneficial to our ministry as well. People who don't know me personally were able to see John and I talk with me just as a guy not on a live call on television show uh, acting up. And the interview allowed a lot of good to happen. Since that time, John has finished his Ph.D. and has become quite uh, the voice of all things ex-Mormon in terms of trying to create a change for people either still in the Mormon church or people who have uh, left it. A few months ago, I boldly stated that there are three true religious leaders in the state of Utah. And when I say true religious leader, I'm talking about people who don't regurgitate something that uh, has been taught to them from a denomination. And the first one I said was Denver Snuffer. He's a guy who believes and touts Joseph Smith and believes and says and teaches he's seen Jesus Christ. Uh, which I think is just another form of Mormonism, but he is a religious leader that is offering ex-LDS people new stuff, frightening as it might be in my opinion. Uh, and then I said we have John Dlynn, who has become kind of a spokesperson for the LGBTQ group and for disaffected Mormons who uh, really don't have anything to do with Jesus. And finally, I, I humbly submitted that I was the third one simply because we don't follow uh, Orthodox Christianity. We teach Jesus, we teach the Bible, and what we believe it says. And it's not that I'm a leader, it's just that we represent something that other denominations and churches don't, which I think is supported by the Scripture. So it's going to be a great opportunity to hear John and what he is doing today. And I think it's going to be of great interest because we're going to talk about some heavy subjects and look forward to hearing what he has to say. I've had a number of you pose some questions to me, which are kind of tough for old John. And uh, so that's going to make it interesting. Got a call last week on the air from a guy, another John in Maryland. Says he enjoys the show and he remains LDS. And he asked the question, what does James White, Jeff Durbin, Dave Bartosowitz, and the pastor guy named Jason, who is constantly critical of you, have in common? This was his question. And John's reply was, dude, they are so text-driven. That's what he said. What did John mean when he called these people text-driven? Which is a little phrase I really like, text-driven. And I think he meant that they're all men who take the Bible, they take every line and they try to say we can interpret this this is what it means we have the right to judge other people by that accept our understanding of the text or you are not christian you're not a brother you're not welcome into fellowship something like that it's really really easy to do i've done it in much of my life i understand why those guys have pursued that path note that the aforementioned do not for the most part, all agree with each other on anything. And it, it shows us the failure of sola scriptura, of saying the Bible will answer everything for us. It's not that the Bible can't, it's that men and women won't allow it to. 
And so the rub comes when we who are not text-driven say we accept everybody who is, but the text-driven people say we don't accept people who aren't. And that's where the rub comes with text-driven people. On this basis alone, we suggest that our approach to the faith, which is subjectively presented, means we let people who believe what they want to believe, think what they want to think, say what they want to say, but we will teach the Bible the best of our ability, led of the Spirit, and the abundant fruits of love are superior to claims of objective truths that other people have to accept in order to be loved and embraced as a Christian. This got me thinking about a scripture and those who are text-driven, and I wanted to share it with you. Remember, there's no book on earth I value more, and I have read a lot of books, and I love the Bible. I read it every day, not by compulsion, because I love it, and it feeds my soul like no other. I also teach it four times a week in different ways. But we have to remember the following things. It was written and addressed to people of that day and age as letters from the living apostles. I'm talking about the New Testament. That God had those living apostles write to them in that day. You have to remember that when you study the Bible. Uh, that the church bride of that day, the believers of that day, were so beyond what believers are today. Now, you might think, well, why, how can you say that? Where do you get that from? I get it from what the New Testament epistles demand of those believers of that day. From the apostles' mouths, they are telling them, you must be this, 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 and this. Why? To be ready for Christ to come and take you as his bride. The book of Revelation says 144,000 had never been with a woman. We're talking about people who had God on their heart, mind, and everything that God used. These people in that early church were head and shoulders above Christians today. And there's a reason for that. That all these letters emphatically emphasize, there's a double emphatically emphasize, that Jesus was returning to take his bride. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my bride. I have 12 apostles who are roaming the earth to protect my bride. I'm coming to get my bride, and it, no one's going to shake it. As soon as that was done, look what happened to the church. It fell into complete disarray, and it has done nothing but royal in disarray ever since. God himself says that there would come a time when he would, after that age of the bride and the church bride and all that, after the apostolic age, God says there's going to come a time where I'm going to shake all the material stuff down to nothing. So the only thing that will remain is immaterial, spiritual stuff. And I'm going to write my laws on the minds and hearts of my people. So today in this world and ever since, way, way, 2,000 years, nearly 2,000 years ago, God has had those people who are on this earth 
who he knows love him and seek him in spirit and truth. And he writes his laws upon their hearts and minds. And they may have had a Bible or they may not have had a Bible, but God has made them his because they have sought him in spirit and truth. That's how it has worked. So I want to go to something on the board here that I think is, is, is something that needs to be understood. And uh, well, hopefully this will help you as it helped me. And what I've called this on the board is the kingdom builders. The kingdom builders. Can I stand here, Seth? Okay. The kingdom builders, who are they? Let me tell you about five groups of people that built the kingdom of God. Now, are we part of the kingdom of God? Is that, are we adding to the kingdom of God in terms of population? Absolutely. Yes, we are part of that kingdom. But who built that kingdom? Okay, let's talk about them just for a minute. The first one were the, I'm just going to write, righteous prophets of the Old Testament. What happened to the righteous prophets of the Old Testament? They never saw the day of everything they talked about. Hebrews says this about them. And many of them were killed and martyred. They were put to death. What happened to them, the he to these heavenly contributors to the, to the kingdom? They went to Abraham's bosom. I think that's how you, bosom, bosom. You'd think I'd know how to spell bosom, uh, but I don't. Okay, uh, who, so there's the first group that helped build the kingdom that is now up in heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. These are the guys who helped create that, that we are now all flowing into as believers for the past 2,000 years. Who else? I'm going to give you the last prophet, John the Baptist. What happened to him in his earthly life as a kingdom builder? He lost his head. It was taken. He was beheaded. That's what, I mean, he did his thing. He lived in the desert. He ate grasshoppers. He wore a camel hair coat and leather girdle. And it was insufferable and hot. And, he, and he's roaming around, and then he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And after that, he says, I have to descend so he can ascend. And he winds up in jail, lost his head. Where does John go? He goes to Abraham's bosom. Okay? What did John do? He paved the way for the big one who helped establish the kingdom, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Right? What did they do to him on this earth? They crucified him. He had no place to rest his head. He was uh, torn. He was, uh, he was left outside the city gates to die. Everybody abandoned him. And of course, he is king of kings, lord of lords. He's sitting on the right hand of God. All right? He is over this kingdom. He is the king and he is the Lord over this kingdom. He was the key builder of that kingdom. So we have the prophets, we have John, we have Jesus. Who else helped build that kingdom? We have the apostles, 12. And I'm going to include Paul in that. And I'm going to eliminate Matthias in that. And I'm going to eliminate Judas in that. And what happened to them? Almost all. What happened? Died on earth 
horrible deaths, martyrdoms. What is their heavenly situation? Their names are written, are written where? On the pillars that uphold heaven. That's what we learned from Revelation. So, so we know that their lives, look at, is anybody like the apostles were? No, they are not. We, they don't have the spiritual gifts. They don't have the insight. They don't have the ability to write scripture. They don't have the authority to govern the church. Nobody on earth today for the past 2,000 years have been like these apostles. None. They helped build that invisible kingdom. Not an earthly one. Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom, a new Jerusalem that is in heaven, a new heaven and a new earth that is spiritual where God writes his laws upon those who love him in their minds and in their heart. That's us. We are people who are populating this heavenly kingdom, but we didn't build it. Someone else built it for us. And guess, is there anybody left? Yes, they're called the saints of the New Testament church. In particular, there is mentioned, and I don't know if this is a symbolic number or a real number, 144,000 of them. What happened to them? They went through the tribulation like no other. That's what the book of Revelation is all about, the tribulation of the saints. And guess what those 144,000 is? They became the bride of Christ. And he took his bride in that final day, and the kingdom was established. This is a, a, a beautiful roof on the kingdom. And it is established, and it's done. The age of this ended. It was established and ended. It's established in heaven. And it has, from that point forward, people have been flowing to it. We share by the Spirit. The Spirit is drawing all men to believe in Christ, come into the kingdom, be part of it. When you die, you can be part of it here spiritually. When you die, you'll be part of it there. But it was built by these people. We lose this when, when we read the New Testament. We think we're building it somehow. We're not building it. We might add to it by sharing Jesus. We might add ourselves to it by following Christ. But that's just population. That kingdom's not going to end. That kingdom is forever established in heaven and has been since they all finished it. My point is, we don't hold a candle to those guys. Not a candle as human beings. As believers, <coughs> we're watching MTV. We're looking at YouTube. We're going out to dinner for sumptuous meals. We're, we're angry that our air conditioner's not working. We get justice on people who treat us badly. These guys, I mean, like I just said, or I said earlier, the, the 144,000, they didn't, weren't even defiled with women, it said. The 12 apostles gave everything. Jesus, son of God, everything. John the Baptist, his head. The prophets, everything, as Hebrews 11 tells us. So when we start thinking that we can live up to what the apostles were telling them in the New Testament, you're nuts. You can live up to it by the Spirit, and the Spirit in you can bring you into this kingdom by God's grace. 
But don't read that New Testament and think somehow that we're on par with the kingdom builders because I would, I would challenge anybody to, to prove that they're on par with the kingdom builders. Now, maybe there's some. I hate to be emphatic, but not all. So, having said that, we're blessed. We look with gratitude to our forefathers of the faith. We're grateful for the nation of Israel, providing us the prophets and the Messiah. We're grateful for John the Baptist. We're grateful for the apostles. We're grateful for the early church and the 144,000 and the bride that Jesus said, I'll come back and get you, but you've got to be worthy of this. And the apostles said, get ready and stay clean because you're going to have trouble if you're not. That is context of scripture. Really, in humble recognition of them, we seek to walk worthy of that kingdom that so many have shed their lives for, especially, of course, Christ Jesus and his atoning blood, which cleanses us from sin. And we look to become a welcome citizen into that kingdom that was built for us, that God built for us, and to dwell within the walls of the new Jerusalem, within the walls of the new Jerusalem, not on the outside of it. That's the goal. So some might say, does it even... Does my faith, does my walk even matter if everyone has been reconciled to God and if the kingdom's already built? I mean, what am I? Well, it matters truly if you love God. I mean, if you are a seeker of God in spirit and in truth, this was built for you. These, were, these people sacrificed for you to enter into that kingdom too. And so it's very, very important if you're someone who loves God. If you don't love God, it doesn't really matter, does it? The new Jerusalem won't matter to you any more than the old Jerusalem matters to you now. Unless it's an, uh, arch uh, an arch architectural and, uh, not architect, archaeological site you want to visit. But you probably have, I mean, if you don't care about God, you probably have no interest in Jerusalem. Why would you have interest in the new Jerusalem? You wouldn't, so you're going to be outside the city gates. You'll dwell in some other place, some other land, just like the pagans have dwelled outside of the city gates ever since the nation of Israel had Jerusalem as its capital. How do we enter that kingdom? We enter that kingdom, <clears throat> well, we enter it from the heart. God judges our heart now. When you read the New Testament, these guys were being judged not only by their heart, by their lives, by their very actions. I mean, that is why the 144,000 are held up as they haven't even been defiled with women. We're talking about a very sanctified, justified, very holy, holy, holy people. And that time that Jesus took as his bride, right? We are now looked by God upon our heart, our renewed mind, and our sanctified lives. We, he looks for a, a humble spirit, a broken and contrite spirit. He looks for the fruit of the Spirit, and we look for the fruit of the Spirit operating in our lives. And, and, and we look to moving to completion, as Hebrews 6 says, that we move past just the things that we have as a foundation. We move on to grow in our faith, and we look to picking up our cross, to dying daily to our flesh, to being buried with Christ and, and rising to new life. These are all part of the people who are part of that kingdom. It's not just those who have been saved. Sons and daughters are people who actually, that's why there's a difference between uh, these guys who built the kingdom and just people who were saved. 
We're talking about these guys really lived it. We are supposed to also live it. That is part of the Christian call. Our old man is crucified. It is buried with Christ, rising to a new man, and we allow him, Christians allow him, who are part of this future kingdom, to reign over their lives. Um, we hope to be joint heirs with Christ in this kingdom. That's a bold statement. We don't just look to be saved by Christ. We look to be joint heirs with him. And as hard as this medicine is, this means that we suffer with him. Joint heirs if we suffer with him. We become adopted sons and daughters of God. Joint heirs with Christ. God will grant us a resurrected body that will be able to abide in his presence without blowing up or catching on fire or deconstructing or whatever happens. And we'll have the capacity to enter his presence. We'll have the capacity to be with glorified God, with Jesus, in his kingdom, in his city gates, in the holy place, in the holy of holies. Whatever resurrected body God grants us, according to his good will, will allow us to inhabit that place and will be warmly welcomed by God and Jesus into that new Jerusalem. And how will God grant this resurrected body? According to scripture, it will be according to his good, good will. His good will. It will be according to the way he judges our hearts. It will be those who have had faith and a care for him and his son. It will be those who know him and his son. We know him by scripture and prayer and the spirit. It will be those who have his son abiding in them and them in his son. And it will be all those who chose to love others by the Spirit. Those are the things of the kingdom now. Those are spiritual things. You didn't hear me mention anything really there that is material. It's all about our heart, our faith, our knowledge of God and His Son, our abiding in the Son and the Son abiding in us, and our choosing to love in place of our own will, which might be, might say otherwise. So I think those things are, are important to understand relative to the kingdom that has been built, and then now that it has been built, um, what it means uh, to us along the way. Um, to the topic at hand, why this God? Why this Bible? And why this Jesus? Tonight's kind of uh, philosophical, but hang with me. I'm sure over the course of post-ascension, Jesus ascending into heaven history, people have always wondered, and they really wonder today online and in other places, why do we trust like love except the God of the Old Testament? I mean, that dude, why do we need him? Why do we need the record of him? And why do we need this Jesus guy in our life? Why do we need him at all? I, I, I've been asked that several different ways by several different people. In this age of millennials and a huge number of people who take this position, I think it's important to understand why do we need this God of the Old Testament? Why do we need this Bible that talks about him? And why do we need this Jesus in our lives? So first, why the God of the Old Testament? I recently watched John DeLynn uh, get interviewed by a couple pastors in the valley and uh, he was kind of hitting them hard on the God of the Old Testament practicing genocide 
and endorsing slavery and, and other things relative to polygamy and, and stuff like that. And I didn't think their answers were that good. And, and so in preparation for interviewing John next week, I started thinking about this. Uh, and I want to preemptively speak about them. Did God allow, did God command the children of Israel to kill animals, children, women, and men? Yes. Yes, he did. Now, there was a lot of hemming and hawing when I heard the pastor say, well, no, he didn't do, yeah, not, not we're not really sure. Look, at he did. The text says it, all right? So let's not dance around the issue. Old Testament God had the nation of Israel go in and kill women and children, bottom line. Did he talk about slavery? Did he seem to condone slavery? He did, yes. Um, did he have people get, uh, uh, did he have others stone other people to death for crimes like disobeying parents and breaking the Sabbath? He did. Yep, he did. They stoned him, killed him. How do we address these facts without stupidly dancing around them and acting like, well, let's, let's describe God and what it plainly says in the Bible in a different way so that it's politically correct. Let's just talk about why God would do this. It all begins and ends with perspective. It's just perspective, all right? From a human perspective, which is the way everyone sees everything, oh, from my perspective, that's a heinous God. That's an ugly God. From my perspective, I want nothing to do with that God. Well, bravo for you. Your giant perspective of everything really is something that you want to follow, right? So. For God to be God, he has to be good in every way. He can't just be good in the ways that we want him to be good in. He can't just do what we want so we can call him a good God, right? Um, and so when we want him to be good in not doing certain things, that are abhorrent to us, like killing children and women, we have to admit that if he were to stop doing some things and force other things to happen, then he would cease to be good and he would be a tyrant. Anytime there is a good God involved, there are going to be things that happen that are very unfortunate. This is not a bad God being involved. This is a good God being involved. A bad God would make everything beautiful, perfect, no one messing up, and he would do it by force. A good God would say, my hands are tied. I can only work in certain areas through certain ways that are already set up by man's decisions. You see, you got to start to see it from another perspective other than your own. So being all good, he has to refrain from forcing others to do the good he desires. He has to pull back from that. From his perspective as an all good God, his human creations, even the very world he created fell and became alienated from him. That world included people who were evil, 
That world included animals that were evil. That world included slavery. It included multiple wives. That was not the world he created. You want to see the world he created? We go to the Garden of Eden. You have a perfect picture of what he created. But when we took that and we decided, made in God's image, to do things from our perspective, things got majorly effed up. Being a good God, he said, now I have to work up realm. And I can't mandate good. I have to allow it to happen through their will and not by my imposing mine upon them. Being good, he knew what it would take to save this world. And so he got to work. How? By engaging with us in our fallen state, in the things we set up, in polygamy, in murder, in slavery, in fallen people, in idol worshipers, in rapists, in all the horrible stuff. He engages with the circumstances surrounding us here on this earth, not forcing evil to stop or manipulating good to happen, but by working in and through what exists in this fallen world, he accomplishes his ultimate ends. Now, if you have to do something over here in 2000 BC that's ugly to accomplish something beautiful in 2000 AD, and we see this is so hor horrific and we can't see what it accomplished here, we are short-sighted. Our perspective is off. If we had his worldview in, in mind and we saw that what he is doing over here in 2000 BC is going to help bring about something absolutely wonderful in 2000 AD, we might wake up and give him a break. But instead, we just look at the event and say, in my heart, which is so wonderful, he did something terrible, and that's a God I can't trust. And that's just sheer idiocy. Because you are using your perspective and not his. We get the idea that God is endorsing things when in fact he is working in and through them as a good God and not a despot that forces things to happen along the way. That takes a lot of patience. That takes a lot. I mean, if he was despotic, even in the cause of doing good, he would be evil. If he was despotic, even to produce good, he would be evil. And he's not an evil God. That's what Hitler did. Hitler had a totalitarian regime and he forced no drinking. He forced no showgirls. He forced all sorts of things in the name of good, and he wound up being completely evil. So you can't be despotic and a good God at the same time. So instead of trying to see God from the human perspective, my suggestion is, what could be his reasons and purposes for doing what he does, allowing what he has allowed, commanded his nation, his chosen people, to do what they did? That's the first point. The second thing to consider about this God and his eternal perspective versus our limited views is what parent wouldn't take a child when they're three who has cancer 
and subject them to some really unfortunate things as a means to see that child live to be 30, 40, 50, 60. Almost every parent. So a parent would say, okay, yes, you're going to have to go bald, little Susan, and yes, you're going to uh, lose this part of your body, and yes, you're going to have 17 operations, and yes, you're going to have chemotherapy, and yes, all this stuff is really, really, really miserable. But we have a goal in mind, honey, and that is to eradicate what's in you so that at the end of the game, you're going to be fine. That's a good parent. That's a good God. So because in the Old Testament we read him doing things that seem like completely horrible things, his goal for the people involved, that includes those who are put to death, is a good end. If the end, eternal end, is good for all involved, how could it be evil? It's not. We just won't give him a break and allow him to work. So we pick on him as being this God that we could never believe in in the Old Testament because we're so cool and liberal and we really have our shit to, stuff together. I mean, geez, I know better than God does. And that's, that's the attitude that we get from every coffee house you know, in America almost. So I suggest the human view and judgment of what he has done ought to switch from being mean and horrible and ugly to being loving and good, to bring about an expected end that is favorable to everybody involved. The final thing is in and through the narrative of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, he is providing for us types and pictures that reflect his solution to all the badness, which is his son. So I'll just give you one. You're familiar with it. The children of Israel acting like babies. So God sends fiery serpents down. What kind of God does this? Fiery serpents down to bite them or sting them, whatever they do. And if they're bitten or stung, they die. That is a picture of the sting of death coming upon people who are being babies and God says, I'm going to give you a picture in type here. Bite away, little fiery serpents. And then the people are dying left and right. And God tells Moses, look, go and make a brass serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up above the people and tell them to look upon that pole, upon the serpent. Just look. And if they look at it, they will be saved. This isn't a narrative of the evil God that we always talk about. He has this happen. Now, he sent the fiery serpents, and yeah, people died from being bit by them, but he was accomplishing something in the narrative, which is to picture the solution to all of these problems in his son. So we read the Old Testament about, you know that God, he created these fiery serpents to bite, flying fiery serpents to bite people, and they died. And then Moses comes along and says, just look on this brass serpent and you'll live. And many of them didn't because if they did, it would have been too easy. So they didn't. They died. But those who did were saved. That it's just a picture and type of his son who is lifted up above the world. And if all you got to do is look to him, just look to him in faith. It takes faith to look up to him. Look to him in faith and you'll live. Now, all through the Old Testament, we have hundreds of these stories that are played out through very, very ugly things that we don't necessarily understand. This is the third reason to believe this God. 
is because he's wrapping in a narrative all things that point to the need for his son, who is the solution to everything that fell apart when Adam and Eve decided to rebel against him. So that's why we believe in this God. He is holy. He's a good God. He is love. He is mercy. He is justice. He is righteousness. And he has a plan involved. And he started off, fell, okay, world, bad people, murder, Cain, Abel, bad, bad, bad. All right, my plan's going to work this way. And yeah, we don't really get it, but that is what he has done. So, uh, that's why we would read the Bible. That's why that Bible. Because it provides us with these narratives. I have people tell me that the Bible is, they don't believe in it. I have them tell me that they think it's fiction. And I, you know, when I read the Book of Mormon, I used to say it was true because that's what I was taught to say it was. But when I read it, some of the stories struck me, but it never really seemed consistent or literary. When I read the Bible, the threads of that book, from what God did in the old to the completion and fulfillment of it in the new, are so out, they're astounding that the book could not possibly be the product of 66 or 59 different men concocting a store, a narrative over the period of 1,500 years to have it cohesively connect with itself in its representation of what God wants it to say. I am the man I am because of the book by the Spirit which Christ has, God has given to us. That has helped me grow, and I, that's why I say this book. Finally, this Jesus. Um, I just want to say this. We might see the human race as a pack of dogs. All right, And the first two dogs disobeyed God. So all of us then became really bad dogs, right? The whole human race. And God said, okay, I'm going to give you a bunch of rules that I'm going to set up above your pen here in the world of dogs, and you obey those rules. Well, we wouldn't obey the rules either. So that showed the rules weren't going to work on us, and asking us to do something like Adam and Eve were asked isn't going to work on us. So God became a dog. God became a dog. That's God backward is dog. And he took on the body of a dog. And he came down in the giant pound and everybody's barking and everybody's doing what dogs do to other dogs. And this dog, God dog, is very different. He says, I love all you guys and I'm just going to obey my father. And I'm going to walk around and do everything necessary that my father wants me to do in order to save you barking mutts. So he trots around and he lives his life and he does everything right. And people really liked him at first and he had a big pack following him. And then slowly they disowned him. And then before you know it, they took that dog and they slaughtered it. They slaughtered it and shed its blood. But guess what? That, that dog didn't have any sin. So its blood was crystal clear beautiful, perfect, eternal, redemptive blood. And all that blood poured out symbolically over every mutt on earth and reconciled them to God. That's why we look to his son. Because he became flesh, dwelt among us, gave his life, 
shed blood for the sins of every dog in the pound. And all those dogs now have to do is say, I believe. And they become the sons and daughters of God because of what that one dog did. Now you can say, well, I like Buddha better. Have at it. Buddha didn't come down and give his life for you. You can say, I like Muhammad better. Go ahead. I like Hindu better. I like this better. I like Denver Snuffer better. Do what you want. Like anybody you want. He gives you that freedom. Why? He's a good God. That good God blesses you when you profane his name. That good God gives you food and shelter when you hate his son. He's a good God. But you are turning away from what he has given you. And that is his son who took on flesh and gave his life. That's why, these are reasons why this God, this Bible, this Jesus. It's very, very simple. All right, let's open up the phone calls, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We're going to just take one second and see. Our phone lines are dead. No. <laughs> Mike just asked me if I wanted him to call in. Um, they're still dead, so guess what? Uh, early night, when there's no calls, we don't wait on it anymore. Uh, next week, oh, you have a question? I have a question. Oh, question. The uh, parents that send their daughter for all the surgeries, Susie's parents? Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. The question, oh, I got it. I'll wait for the call, Mayor. Okay. Uh, th what Mike said, his question here in studio is, why would Susie have cancer in the first place? Wouldn't a good God stop that from happening so that they wouldn't have to subject her to all those terrible treatments for a good end? And the answer to that is a good God would not infect Susie with cancer. We did. Our federal head, our father, Adam and Eve, said, we don't like your ways. We're going to do things our way. We fell into sin, and with sin came death. And with cancer comes death. Susie got that from God being, and again, remember I said, when there are bad things, it's the result of a good God. He could have, people say, well, why didn't he just wipe out sin? Why didn't he just wipe out disease? He wouldn't be a good God then. He would be a despot. He would be a puppeteer who takes things and fixes everything for us when we've made the mess instead of working in and through them to bring about an expected end. That's what a good God does. That's how I would answer that. But it's a great question. All right, what line? Corey on line one. Corey. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Excellent. So I have, a, I have a quick comment and then also a question. Yeah. Okay. So my comment is that I've been, I think I agree a lot with the Christianity stuff that you're doing. It kind of gave me a, it kind of gave me a good title to give myself because I thought a lot of the same things too. I believe a lot in a very subjective faith. Awesome. And just, uh, one of my reasonings, I don't know if you've talked about it or not, is talking about the thief on the cross. Ah. Yeah, and so the thief on the cross, 
you know, he's he's essentially the bare minimum of like the necessary for the gospel. He believed in Christ, he repented, and uh, Christ promised him he would be with him in paradise. You Amen. know? Yeah. So to me, everything else, Calvinism, speaking in tongues, everything else is super subjective and person to person, and uh, you know what I mean? And so that's just kind of how my faith has always been, is like, do you believe in the bare bones gospel of Jesus? Awesome. All right. And then from there, it's up to you. You know? I love that. Yeah, yeah. The view on the cross is a, is a big deal to me. And then uh, Paul also said, uh, become all things to all men in order that you might save some, which is more in the tune of the subjectivity where you became the Jew to the Jew, you know, the Gentile to the Gentile. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to throw in some more support for the Christianarchy side of the subjective faith. Thanks, brother. We don't get that much of it, so I really appreciate that you uh, understand what we mean by that. And, and you know what's, what's, what's great about what you just brought up, I just, uh, just occurred to me, is that the thief on the cross, where the one is railing against Jesus, uh, he doesn't make any profession of faith. He doesn't say, say, he doesn't say a sinner's prayer, does he? All, no, he doesn't. He, all he does is he addresses him as Lord. Lord, yeah. remember me. And that was enough. Yes, exactly. Fantastic comments there. I really appreciate it, brother. All righty. I do have one question, too, if that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I know a lot about LDS. Uh, I actually, it's kind of funny, my testimony comes from talking to Mormons because I studied a lot of apologetics, but I still consider myself agnostic, atheistic, but I grew up in a Christian home. Ah. And so I actually became a Christian from debating Mormons just because I knew they were wrong. And huh. It was just a fun time for me intellectually. <laughs> But I ended up studying the Bible to defeat them in debates, which actually made me fall in love with the Bible. So thank you, Mormon. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, my question is, I'm in Independence, you know, just outside of Kansas City, which is the mecca of RLDS. Yeah. And I actually don't know a lot about RLDS. And I was wondering if you could tell me some of the differences between the two and, like, how I could help my community more in Independence. Well, the interesting thing about it, uh, Corey, is RLDS is not what it used to be. And so they're now the, the, the uh, community, community of, of Christ. Yeah, community yeah. of Christ. And they have changed uh, dramatically from what they originally were from Joseph Smith's uh, other son. And so, uh, uh, bottom line, they still believe the Book of Mormon. And, yeah. and, and so, Joseph Smith as well, right? Yeah, Joseph Smith as well, but they don't believe he ever, ever practiced polygamy. And uh, they don't believe a lot of the Doctrine and Covenants. They, use, they, they really have gone very mainstream on Christian, uh, Christian essentials. So I'm not sure, I mean, except for that extra book of Scripture and thinking that Joseph Smith is a prophet, um, I, I don't know if they do temple stuff anymore. I don't, I don't know if they do any. In fact, I'm not, I haven't boned up on it, my brother. I just know they've changed so much that they are really generally considered as a part of the body by many Christians. Okay. Yeah. So it's, that's interesting, yeah, because, I mean, leaving the Book of Mormon to me is like instant no-go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, having another gospel preached to them by an angel. You know what I mean? Yeah. From the Joseph Book of Mormon original. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I was just thinking of ways, how can I witness to them, because I don't want to talk to them, you know, about polygamy and all that other stuff, because they don't believe that. So, like... What is the bare bones way to talk to an RLDS person about the Bible and like 
the translation that Joseph Smith has is pretty bad. Boy, I, I would, I would, uh, I would probably open up the discussion with. I just am curious why you would want a, a Book of Mormon uh, when you have a Bible, and then using your apologetic skills, point out all the the uh, exterior supports for the Bible and linguistically and genetically and archaeologically, and then how there is nothing, uh, nothing to support the Book of Mormon. And then maybe if you can go deeper into how it was created and who really contributed to it, Sidney Rigdon and Oliver Spaulding and Solomon Spaulding and uh, View of the Hebrews and all those books. And, uh, you know, if you could just kind of lead them to your knowledge of what the Bible, how it is the Word of God, that would probably be the greatest service you could do with the, art, with the community of Christ people. Okay, awesome. Yeah. really appreciate your input, Sean, and I love part of the matter, both the Mormon and the evangelical stuff. So, 100% written for you, man. Thanks, brother. God bless you. God bless you, too. Okay, bye. Uh, line two is not blinking, Seth. Line three? Line three. Line three, you're on Heart of Zamata. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Good, how are you? Hey, pretty good. I just thought I'd uh, throw in a couple things here when you were talking about how, like, saying, for instance, when people go against the God of, of the Old Testament, as they say. Yeah. Um, a couple things that I've heard that I thought are pretty amusing is, like, uh, Ravi Zacharias, when he talks about it in some of his uh, speeches, he'll basically go down to the point of, look, if there's no objective moral values in your in your life, what are you complaining about? There's God didn't do anything right or wrong anyways. Wow. Very good. And then there was, a, there was another one. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this guy's name right, but it's, it's Frank Turek, I think. He's talking to this lady, and she's saying, look, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he, he committed this massacre against the Canaanites, and... So he busted it down to, okay, fine, let's, let's break this down a little bit more. He says, he says uh, are, you pro, are you pro-life? And she says, uh, I'm pro-choice. He says, so it's okay for you to choose when someone lives or dies, but not a righteous wow. God. Wow. So I just thought those were interesting, hey, interesting things. Th- uh, that's really great because, uh, you know, uh, sharing his mind with us, Anytime you can is good because it's so keen, and those arguments help us with people who just love to assassinate him uh, for what yeah. he, he did. So thank you so much, my brother. All right. Take it easy, man. Okay, talk to you. All right. And we have Joan on line one. Joan, you're on Heart of the Matters. Hi, Sean. Hi, Joan. Hey. Okay, so I think I understand... Um, Maybe this, but I'm going to ask you this anyway. So, God of the Old Testament, uh, what is the difference between the false gods of the Old Testament requiring child sacrifices, like to Moloch, and and then the difference of like allowing the slaughter or massacre of of children of their enemies of Israel? Well, a couple differences that I see right off the top of my head, Joan. One is... The slaughtering of, of uh, children is indicative of the human state in the fall. So it's not like they were innocent. They had the stain of sin upon them. Now, to us, it's reprehensible. But the point being made is we aren't born into righteousness. 
we're born into the state of depravity. If, we're, if our lives are taken as children, as infants, or as adults, it's all the same in God's eyes. He doesn't have a standard of, of this when it comes to sin and corruption. The second thing is that he wasn't having them offer children up as sacrifice to him. He was just telling them, wipe them out. Why? Well, uh, that goes to the types and pictures of with God, there is nothing sinful allowed. Not even a sinful sheep is allowed within his covenant people. And so sin has to be wiped out in his covenant people. Sin has to be wiped out completely in a human being. And so the only way that's going to happen is through the shedding of blood. And it's going to be through the shedding of the blood of his son for human beings, completely wiping out all sin. So it's a picture and a type. And, and it's very different from taking children to a false god and sacrificing them in hopes that the god will bless them with material blessings. That's what I was thinking also. But yeah. I thought I'd ask. That's how I would put it, my sister. Okay, thanks. Drive safe. I'm not driving. <laughs> Bye. I had to say that because you got in some kind of accident from what I heard. Okay, that's it for the calls. We will see you next week. John DeLynn, three-hour special. We may do it in parts. I'm not sure. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.